Welcome to the Living with Lymphoma podcast series, brought to you by the Lymphoma Research Foundation. I'm one of your hosts, Izumi Nakano. And I'm Victor Gonzalez, uh, one of your other hosts, and we're both part of the Lymphoma Research Foundation's helpline. This is our inaugural podcast in a series devoted to discussing matters important to those touched by a diagnosis of lymphoma. Uh, this week, we'll be talking about coping with lymphoma during the holidays. Our guests today are Dexter Neal, a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, who is gracious enough to share his story with us, and Christy Redfield, a clinical social worker who specializes in cancer survivorship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Thank you both so much for joining us today. You know, the holidays can be a very busy time, but to add a lymphoma diagnosis uh, must be gosh, pretty overwhelming in so many ways. Um, Dexter, what was it like for you when you were first diagnosed? Getting that initial diagnosis of having cancer, a, a million things go through your head from something as small and, and, and trivial as what's my day-to-day -day work life going to be to something as big as am I going to survive this? Am, is this going to end with me dying? And so it's a very stressful just kind of whirlwind you get thrust into, especially when it's something that you're not expecting, which very few people are. And so when it comes to that, it's pretty pretty hard to handle and pretty hard to take, at least individually. It's something that you really have to have that kind of support group around you to, to kind of get you away from a very depressive and yeah, anxious what, state. You know, some of the stressors that you experience, and what are the more common ones that you think you can remember? looking back at that experience? One of the biggest things I kind of just remember was not being able to kind of keep my focus on almost anything without my mind kind of just wandering and ending up back at this, what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my family with this cancer diagnosis. You, my focus wasn't high to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my attention span has always been a little short. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, you're trying to do paperwork or write an email or just having a conversation with friends and family. And you kind of find yourself zoning out and drifting into that kind of deeper, darker, more depressive anxiety space. Yeah, your mind's, mind's preoccupied by the words. Yeah, and absolutely. It, it's really hard yeah. to not have that being the, the number mm -hmm. one topic that you're thinking about on every waking moment and every second of the day. How did you talk to your family about that? Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like my family, they were, they were so wonderful and so supportive and they still are to this day. Um, but my, my family would kind of just say like, Hey, are you there? Like you kind of just drifted off and you kind of just disappeared and you kind of just had this glazed look in your eyes to where, you know, when, when someone's just daydreaming and not kind of present and real in that conversation. And so they kind of would just ask me, you know, what am I thinking about? And it wasn't like, hey, pay attention to me, listen to this. It was, what's going on? What are you thinking about? What can, what can we do? You want to talk about that instead? Or it, it was just that kind of supportive action rather than a repressive action of my kind of daydreams that they did that helped me the most. And, and who in your family you felt was one of the biggest supports? Um, so, like my 
ex-wife <laughs> uh, no but yeah it was uh my my wife olivia and then my mother and yeah. father mm-hmm. were were huge supports on that and then i have a really great close friend group um some of which were friends that had only been friends for a few months at the time of my diagnosis and some had been friends for decades yeah and so those people calling me or saying hey man i just got off work let me stop by let's let's hang out and talk yeah. a little bit let's watch the walking dead together tonight and he's just kind of doing something to not be alone and focusing on the negatives in life but enjoying time with those people right and from what i understand is that this was all occurring during the holidays that's correct so So walk us through that a bit yeah so my initial diagnosis is in december right before christmas so my little brother had just come in town for uh the christmas break from college Uh, My wife and daughter and I were going to see and stay with my parents for the Christmas break and the New Year's, you know, celebrations. And my sister had come in town. We had aunts and uncles coming through. So our our, my immediate family and my entire extended family was coming into town to stay with my parents and my family that lived there for that holiday break right as I got diagnosed. So it's interesting because I think for a lot of people, at least, you know, people who contact us on the helpline, you know, oftentimes it can be a very isolating experience during the holidays because they're around family, but at the same time they feel alone because they feel separate from them, right? Um, but I think, you know, for some people, I'm kind of getting what you're saying. You know, you're you're you felt like you were surrounded by people. Yeah, but I see where other people are coming yeah. from, too, when they call into the help line and they talk to you guys about that kind of stuff. Because, yes, physically, I was surrounded by everyone, but I was almost kind of this, uh, you know, pariah in this group because I was this one that just had this thing happen, like yeah. just had this diagnosis happen. And my family at that time didn't know what to do or how to handle that any more than I did. And so it's things that we kind of had to figure out by trial and error, what's the best way to support someone? What's something not to bring up? What are things not to talk about? Do we talk about this at all? So I've got cousins and aunts and uncles who are here on holiday to have a good time and spend time with our family. And then I'm kind of, even though I'm surrounded by people, still very alone in my kind of mental state because people are afraid to bring it up to me. No one yeah. wants to talk about that because I guess at okay. this was the week they got there is when I got this diagnosis when half of my family had just shown up and the other half was coming in the next day or two. Okay. Okay. So then you did feel a lot of the things. Yeah. Did you I, kind of I, feel like you had to be okay? Yeah, it was, you know, definitely the whole like put on a brave face thing, right? I, I, I don't want people to see me as someone who is like weak or afraid because whether you it could be like a you don't want people to feel sorry for you and I didn't want people to treat me any different but kind of looking at it now and then learning as I went through this experience it is something that's different it is something Mm -hmm. that's unique and you can't no matter what you think or want to do move on living the exact same life you did before you have to do a lot of the things the same and kind of just keep on going the best you can but at the end of the day something huge and dramatic has happened Mm -hmm. and that does need to be addressed yeah not all the time 
It doesn't need to be the only thing you're talking about or thinking about, but it's something that needs to be kind of brought up. Mm -hmm. So you don't have that isolation, even if you are surrounded by people. Right. Or even if you're alone, you need to reach out to that support system so you're not alone completely. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say some level of acknowledgement of the reality of the situation. Right. And so exactly. And it's like this trial and error kind of thing, right? What works for you? What works for your family? We kind of found out through that trial and error over the holidays what worked for us because my treatment started then and it went forward for the next seven months. But it was that holiday kind of experience that was the trial and error. What was going to be fitting for me? What was going to be fitting for my family to kind of just find this balance between talking about it, working through it, acceptance of everything. And I went through that experience during the holidays. Yeah. And what, what did you find was the balance for you? So the balance for me was um, kind of when I got to those points where I was doing the daydreaming and losing focus, whether it was with work or with my daughter or wife or my parents or anyone in my life, that was the point that I needed to talk about something. What was I thinking about? What made me lose focus? Let's kind of just pause, take a breath. Let's talk about that. Let's focus on that for a second because that's the prevailing thought in my mind. And I don't need to to pass that up and keep that in, you know, inside and alone, because if you do that, then you would end up alone. And it's something you're dealing with alone rather than with friends and family. So that was the biggest balance is make sure when I can't keep myself in a normal, if you will, quote unquote life, because something else is on my mind that I needed to talk about that and bring it up. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing. I, too often, we keep things to ourselves, right? And um, it is really helpful to be able to share some of the thoughts and emotions that you're experiencing to process them, right? And, and see what type of support you can get from other people who may not necessarily be in the same shoes that you're in, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, we don't know all the different things that other people have experienced, right, that can potentially help you through your own process. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It's different for every person because every person is a unique and different, you know, uh, whether their diagnosis is the exact Mm -hmm. same and they're the same age and the same sex and live in the same region. It doesn't matter. Your experience is going to be completely different than mine. And so there would be days where I would not have to really kind of talk about my treatment or this and that for a day or two. And then there were times where I was having to talk about it multiple times an hour and people need to know that that's okay. It's something that it doesn't have to be like, Oh, Hey, yeah, I go and I speak with someone on Thursdays about this. So Thursdays is my day to kind of really be open and vulnerable and kind of, you know, speak to my friends and family about it. No, it's what works for you could be all the time. It could be rarely, it could be both. And that's kind of the balance that we found was it was a little bit of both. And I encouraged my family to talk to me about it too, and my friends. And it's one of the things that people always say, oh, hey, is it okay if I talk, you know, tell me about your cancer diagnosis, even now to this day, years later. Oh, is that something that you don't wanna talk about? Because people understand that it's a very traumatic thing. But I made sure I let those people in my life know, I want you to talk to me about it. Just like if I'm you know, having a thought or a feeling and I want to bring it up to you guys, I want you to do the same thing to me. And that kind of two-way communication versus it's, 
Dexter has cancer. Everyone, let's cater to him and this and that, which is like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's a very like mentally kind of pleasing thing. Like, oh, hey, pay attention to me. Sure. Right. But at the end of the day, it's not a healthy relationship. And so even though it might be great and helpful for you, your family and friends, the people that love and they care about you, they're having a lot of those same fears and anxieties and feelings that you are. Whether they're not physically going through those treatments, they're emotionally going through them with you. And so I encourage them to speak to me about it because at the end of the day, it helps them, yeah. which in turn helps me even more. Right, yeah, it can be therapeutic for everyone. Did they share what they were feeling with you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh-huh. I, I had, and, and people share in different ways. I had certain friends that just wanted to come and hang out and spend time with me and then kind of say, hey, I'll get your mind off of some stuff. Let's do this. We used to like to go here. Let's go here and, you know, kind of relive our childhood. And I had other friends that wanted to sit there and talk to me about it. And they'd ask me questions, you know, whether it was a medical question, something that they were unfamiliar with that I was just learning maybe the day before, (laughs) or if it was something as, you know, serious and philosophical as like hey do you believe in god what's your mentality for you know going forward with with religion in your experience of treatment so yeah people people did share and they did ask questions and me telling them that i wanted them to do that opened up a whole lot of doors for me that i don't think i would have had without you know kind of putting myself out Mm -hmm. there like that yeah yeah. And Christy, I would imagine as a social worker that you've heard so many different stories. And, and um, I was wondering in your experience, have you noticed any common stressors that you've heard families mention or patients mention? Sure. You mean specifically around during the holidays or? Right. And just sorry. dealing with, yeah. with this diagnosis. Sure. I mean, I think I want to echo what you said, Dexter, about that there are there are sort of common things that come up and different themes that I hear, but that each person and each family um, has their own unique pain points around it, right? Like in your story, you were diagnosed the week of the holidays. That's part of the story, right? And right, um, yeah. so your experience of coping with your cancer during the holidays is unique in that way because it's also an anniversary of your diagnosis, right? Yes. Um, so I just wanted to say that as a disclaimer, right? Like these are very sort of like general thematic things that many people I think relate to, but that, you know, everyone has their unique pain points. Um, and I would say like um, the, the number one thing that we see is that the holidays are often, even if it's not an anniversary of your diagnosis, there are time that people reflect on the year before. It's sort of like a, it's a, you know, nearing the end of the calendar mm-hmm. year yeah. and that people are thinking of like, well, what happened this year, right? And for patients and families who are going through treatment or have recently finished treatment or have had it in the past, it often can bring up a lot of losses, like a multitude of losses um, they've had to cope with throughout their experience. And so I think sometimes people are coping with grief during the holidays in a different way. Um, and that is stressful, right? Because that brings with it sadness, potentially anxiety, potentially anger, which are like, mm-hmm. right, not the feelings you're, su- I'm using air quotes, like supposed to be feeling during the holidays, right? right. Yeah. Happy full of holidays. joy. Happy holidays, <laughs> right? yeah. Um, and I think that's a big one, right? Like, and that relates to how families relate to each other too, right? That I think when you're going through treatment, perhaps there might be a little more empathy 
towards your pain. But when you're in survivorship, perhaps, like, you look fine. You did it. You're done. Yay. Great. It's over. And maybe for you, it's not over. Right. Maybe there are things going on. You're afraid of recurrence or you're, you know, still recovering from this traumatic ordeal that you've been through and you look fine, but you don't feel fine. So that's what we see a lot in the survivorship program that I work in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if you're diagnosed and you're going through treatment, there might be some very real changes too, right? Like um, if your family normally has a tradition of um, getting together in a group of 50 and you're immunocompromised, that might not be the best thing for you, right? Right, And so you have to adjust to different kinds of changes in tradition and also Mm -hmm. separations that are painful when you could use your family around you. Um, Mm -hmm. There could be things like fatigue that change what you feel up to, right? If you have small kids and they're excited and running around and you might feel a loss of not being able to be as excited and energetic. I don't know if these things resonating. Yeah, absolutely. So when when I got that diagnosis in December, my daughter was six months old. So I had a six month old daughter that was also on my mind the entire time because it wasn't just me and my life and my family, but hers as well. And so when you're talking about things that you're not able to do because of fatigue, you know, whether it's like, oh, hey, play a little family like pickup football game, or this is going to sound really like Texas, but like one of the big <laughs> things we love to do is go to the rodeo. And the rodeo in Houston is the biggest in the world. And there's 70 to 100,000 people there. Yeah. You can't do those things right. when yeah. you're going through treatment. So it's something that you're missing out on, whether it's you alone or, you know, my family says, oh, well, we're not going to do that this year. Well, then it kind of falls on to me mentally as well to where it's like, hey, this is preventing them from a tradition, preventing them from doing things that they want to do. And so it's very easy to go to like a kind of depressed and dark Mm -hmm. place because of that. So you're absolutely right. You know, it's the the physical recovery is one thing, but the mental and the emotional recovery is another part altogether. And that could have lingering and lasting effects years after the physicality is overcome. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that's very important to consider at that point that one of the things that um, can be very helpful for people are resources of support, right? Connecting them with um, whether it's a support group or a peer support program, like our very own lymphoma support network, for example. So we have a program where we match patients and caregivers with survivors who have been through a similar experience. And oftentimes um, that can be really helpful, right? For someone who really wants to hear from somebody who has actually walked down that same path. Um, But, you know, just speaking of what you said earlier, I think people have different needs. So it's a matter of assessing what might be the most appropriate thing for them. Right. Um, You know, and and Christy, when you speak to people who are newly diagnosed, you know, what do you find are some of the most common types of resources that they're asking for? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I want to echo again what you said, Dexter. I think that the diagnosis is is its own specific crisis point in the continuum of experience that it's a trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? It's unexpected. Yeah. It's life-threatening. It's a confrontation with your mortality. And, and I think that I usually say to patients when I work with someone who's newly diagnosed, like, you're going to think I'm crazy, but give it a month. And in a month, you might feel not better, mm-hmm. but a little less overwhelmed every second, every minute yeah. of the day. And in that time, patients really need a lot of information, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety right. um, about 
what to expect from treatment, um, what to ask for from others. Mm -hmm. I think that um, you don't know. How could you know? There's no blueprint for this. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that depending on where you're receiving your care, you should try to access the resources that are available there. You know, at Sloan Kettering, in pediatrics, where we see a lot of young adult lymphoma patients, there's 100% social work coverage. So every family meets a social worker. Um, In adult services, that's not always the the case, but um, you could always ask to speak to someone. And usually the social workers in the medical settings, like the the social worker that's assigned to work with that team, should know what resources are available. Like at Sloan, we're we're very lucky, resource-rich. We have social workers, we have um, psychiatry, we have child life therapists who work with children. Um, We have integrative medicine, which is like massage therapy and mindfulness therapists and uh, Reiki and um, um, different martial art instructors even, like um, Tai Chi, yoga. Um, And so, and we have support groups there. So I think that Everyone is different in what they need, but knowing what's available and it's, it's the is first helpful. step. And helping yeah. some help communicating with the medical team, I think, mm-hmm. in the very beginning can be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that resonates at all. Right. But. Yeah, absolutely. It resonates because just, just what you said is it's this overwhelming kind of information overload and this huge information gap yeah. because most people that are diagnosed aren't oncologists aren't you know someone who is spent their life studying this or supporting this so it's what kind of cancer do I have what does this mean how long does this take what's the results of the treatment going to be what's my life looking like going forward for the next year for the next five years ten years for the rest of my life and there's all this kind of just overload of info and you don't know what to do with it you don't know where to get it you kind of find yourself lost and for me like that's where I found the Lymphoma Research Foundation is kind of getting me in touch with people who can answer these questions and then people like you mm-hmm. and the social workers and like Sloan Kettering and things to where it's where you, you said you can something as simple as hey this is just someone to talk to you to point you in the right direction as information mm-hmm. or this is someone to talk to almost in a therapist type way or hey this is activity for you to do you just to kind of take your mind off of this let's learn yoga right. yeah whatever works for you but being knowledgeable about those kind of offerings is uh, is a huge deal and sometimes to being able to talk to someone who is not a friend or family member mm-hmm. yeah. is huge mm-hmm. because sometimes that personal connection you have with someone can prevent you from being as open and vulnerable as you'd like. Some people, it could be the opposite. Some people, it, it, it's different for everyone. But being able to have that kind of uh, knowledge about where to go to find these kind of programs and these things and the people to talk to is a huge thing that I think needs to be you know ad- addressed and talked about more right yeah and I think and it's important to have calls through our helpline you know people that maybe just found out they have this diagnosis and they're in shock and they didn't hear everything that the doctor told them so they go online and they look up all this information and and you know hopefully they call our helpline and you know we can at least help them kind of talk it through and, and generally give them that support and, and the resources that, that Christy, you mentioned, and Dexter, you mentioned as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll piggyback on that and that, you know, one thing you mentioned, Christy, is that uncertainty and how that can create anxiety. And we find that to be quite true on the helpline, I think. When someone's diagnosed and they just don't know what they're facing, 
giving them some basic information that they may or may not have already received from their doctor, um, you know, which because we see both cases. Um, but I think that in situations where they haven't really received anything, where they received something they didn't really understand, having a situation where we're able to, um, you know, connect them with some of that information is uh, very, very helpful, you know, and being able to, you know, process that and, and, and eliminate some of that uncertainty and ideally with that, some of the anxiety. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's such a wonderful service because we do know that when people are under stress, they don't absorb all the information that they're given, right? right? And so I think that, you know, it's great to remember that the medical team knows that. Right. And that they're used to that. And it, you can ask your questions as many times as you need to to understand. But it's also helpful to seek out support in the community, like your foundation, to help get information that's vetted, right? Like the internet's full of information <laughs> right. that could be. Dr. Google, un- right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like not accurate and not helpful. Right. right. And then also, you know, to. Um, Bring someone with you to your appointments if you can, yeah. right? To have another set of eyes and ears to help you take in the info. Because you need the information and you're so overwhelmed that you most likely aren't absorbing it all. Right. Yeah, right? that's definitely yeah. A, a really, really big thing I would tell people. Have someone come to that appointment with you. Because right. like you said, you're not going to be able to remember it all just because of your anxiety and your stress level. That was unfortunately something I wasn't able to do all the time because I had a six-month-old daughter, right, and she's not allowed to go to the hospital <laughs> where people are being treated. So um, I, I did a lot of these appointments kind of solo, and I'd get home, my wife, my mother, people would call and ask, like, hey, what did they say? What was this? And I, I really couldn't remember it. I tried to take as best notes as I could, but it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. You know, and I think, um, you know, for some people, if they're do, if they do have multiple family members visiting, you know, maybe perhaps they can take one of them right during the holidays <laughs> right, and make yeah. use of, 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 you know, some of those family members that might be willing to uh, help out in that sense. Because I think on the caregiver side, um, oftentimes it can be a little confusing for them on how to help. Sure. Right. Um, and they want to, and they want to be able to provide some form of support, but they may just not be fully sure what steps to take or what um, the person they're caring for might actually be needing. Um, you know, we get calls like that on the helpline sometimes saying, how can I help that person um, or the person I'm caring for? What would you say, Dexter, if, if say someone really wanted to help you, but say didn't feel comfortable asking you? Oh, wow. Um you know, that's, that's a really kind of unique question. It's, it's one of those things to where it's, it's very individual, right? So who, who are the, who's the person we're talking about? You know, if you're talking about me in particular, it's like, well, ask me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm a very open kind of person, but I, I know everyone's not like that. A lot of people are more introverted than I am. And so it's one of those things where if you're wanting to know how to help someone, a loved one, a friend, a family member, whatever, just sometimes just being there. Yeah. Whether they want to talk about it, great. Whether If they don't want to talk about it, that's great. If they want to go to dinner, if they want to go for a walk, if they want to watch your guys' favorite movie or TV show, but just literally having someone physically there yeah. is 
can make a world of difference. Yeah, sometimes yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a huge difference just because it makes that person not feel alone. Yeah. So I've had a best friend since childhood on his two days a week off, he would come and we had, we had an apartment in the medical center in Houston where I was being treated and he would spend his two days a week off and he would just hang out. He'd just sleep on the floor. We had a couch, but he slept on the floor. He's a weird guy, <laughs> but uh, it, it, he, he just him being there. Yeah. Just as this has been someone who's known me for 20 years and the, the physical presence of that person, whether we talked about something as serious as my diagnosis or not, um, that, that made the world of difference to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So that would be my recommendation. So just be there with them. Yeah. And when the time comes for them to talk about it, they will. Right. Mm -hmm. And do you get caregivers asking you for resources or similar questions as well? Yeah, sure. We have, we actually have a caregiver specific program at Sloan. Um, I think that it, it is a, the definition of a cancer survivor is um, a patient or anyone who, like a loved one of the patient who's experienced right. it yeah. and caregivers have a unique role um, I think that I think I really like what you said about being available yes right um, I think that you know there's different kinds of support that people need there's people need instrumental support like I call those people the doers, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can do your laundry for you. Yeah. I can um, cook you a meal. I can drive you to your appointment. And so if you need something like that, turn to a doer for that, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you, um, I think there are other kinds of caregivers, like your friend you said, who could listen, right? There are some people that have the capacity to really listen to what's going on for you. And if that's something you can do, be available for that. And I think there are also people who can give you respite, right? Like yeah. take you to a movie, hang out with you. And that all those things are important, right? Um, so, and caregivers have that role and also the role of just sort of like being there with you in the medical part of it, right? And so sometimes they, they don't know what to do, right? And you help them by letting them help you. I always say like, give them a specific job like if your mom is breathing down your neck, right? Like give her a job. <laughs> like mom, I really need my laundry done. I mean, that's, you know? that's great. That's <laughs> such a good idea. Give her a job. Yeah. yeah. You know, hopefully happily do it. You know, and what you just said reminded me of a time years past when um, a husband called, his wife was diagnosed with lymphoma and she was the one that typically put, you know, the dinner together during uh, their Christmas Eve celebration, uh -huh. you know, and she couldn't do that this particular yeah. year, you know, and so he was trying to figure out well, what can I do? I was like, well, do you cook? <laughs> I asked him, he's like, a little bit. I'm like, well, yeah, there are other people who can cook. Yeah. Yeah, that way you can still take advantage of being together and that dinner will still be served, but being respectful to time, of the fact that, you know, maybe she can't do the whole thing herself yeah. as she has in years past, but maybe still give her a job, you know, so it doesn't feel completely um, isolated either because I know it was a really hard uh, part of it for her to not be able to do, uh, you know, all of it, but, you know, perhaps doing some yeah. of it would still fulfill some of that um, tradition. Tradition, right. It's really nice. It's one of the things that we try to suggest to families when they're when they're coping with cancer during the holidays is that they sort of take inventory. Yeah. Like, what are the things that you normally do to celebrate or to acknowledge? What are the things you feel you should do? I'm doing those in air quotes because should like banish it yeah you know <laughs> and um and then what are the things you want to do 
right? Yeah. Like, and focus on the things that you want to do, right? And, and maybe that what I loved about what you said just now is that there are traditions, right, that you can still do, but maybe you do them a little differently. Like, instead of, you know, the, the patient making this huge meal, maybe you have a potluck, yeah. right? And yeah. like, you, you still do the tradition, but differently in a way that yeah. like accommodates for like what you're saying, Dexter, the reality of what's happening. Right. Yeah, because right? at the end of the day, there are some things that you just can't do. Right. Whether it's physically or the doctor says, hey, you don't need to be around that many people right. that Chrissy was talking about earlier. There, But it's what do you want to do? What kind of accommodations can be made to still kind of have this holiday tradition or this kind of special feeling that you guys, this is what we've always done. And to be okay with the thought that that's okay. Right. Yeah. To be able to have things a little bit different and that doesn't make it necessarily any less special, right? That you're still doing something together and even though it's a little different, um, you know, perhaps that's a new tradition in some way or well, a new and, tradition and it, can start right, from that. Like there's the, the both, right? There's the it's okay and you might feel sad about it, right? Yeah. Like that's real, right? Like and, and it's okay and you're still together. That's okay. Right? Yeah. It's like that you that all of the feelings are okay. Right. Right? Like however you feel. I mean, the other thing I would say is just like a, a tip, like some treatments can be adjusted a little bit. If so you have something that's really really important to you. Like when I worked in peds, I had a lot of kids who like prom was really important, yeah. right? Maybe the medical team can tweak it a little bit so that you won't be totally neutropenic the day of the prom so you <laughs> right. can go, right? And so yeah. I would say the same thing with the holidays. Like if there's, if it's possible, right? The medical team can't do anything to help you if they don't know. So, right. I mean, they may not be able to, right? There might be things you just can't do, like go to the rodeo, right? right. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. But like there might be some wiggle room and they yeah. can't help you with that if they don't know. Right. So yeah, and that's never a big thing. To Talk ask. to your that's talk so to important. the the medical professionals that are there to serve you in that sense mm -hmm. because Chris is exactly right I in in my experience you know a few months after my initial diagnosis one of my childhood best friends was big, was uh, getting married and I was a groomsman in that wedding and so I had a lot of like not really responsibilities as a groomsman but we had a lot of activities yeah. we were doing we were doing photos and dinners and rehearsals and these kind of things and bringing that up and talking to the medical staff at the hospital they were able to say, okay, so that weekend for three days, you're going to be busy, you're gonna need energy, you're gonna be around people. This is what we can do to help you out. Mm -hmm. This will give you you know, better energy. We're gonna kind of move your other treatment back a little further. Uh, so that way you'll be good and happy and ready to go. But just the, the fact that you have to bring that up, like Chrissy said, that's the biggest yeah. thing. People don't know what you don't tell them. Right, yeah. And it's amazing how many um, people don't feel comfortable sharing that type of information with their healthcare team. Um, but it is very important, right? And, and same thing with side effects of treatments that you are receiving, right? How important it is to share those um, because there are some things that can be done. That's you know, right. It may not necessarily be able to eliminate it completely, but perhaps it can diminish it and, and ameliorate the situation a bit well, so that you can partake. Yeah, you're absolutely, I, I think one of the things that, that people get caught up in a lot when they're trying to kind of overcome their their cancer diagnosis, um, mentally and emotionally, it's keep my life normal, quote unquote, right? My life needs to be as normal as possible. So I understand that, trust me, I get where they're coming from on that, but at the end of the day, your life right now is not normal. It is a little bit different and it's okay for it to be different and it's okay for you to acknowledge that because 
someone doesn't want to bring something up or change something they do because that's not normally what they would do. And that could be like a, a, a dangerous thing. And so I, I get wanting to be as normal as possible, be treated as normal as possible. But we also have to acknowledge our limitations in that sense. And that must be really tough when you have children and having to talk to them about having this diagnosis, um, especially during the holidays. And obviously it depends on the kid and, and how old they are. But um, Christy, are there tips or resources out there for, for patients that for, have children? For, for parenting? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that's especially for young adults who have small children, right? Like that they, they don't understand, right? That, that mom or dad is tired or that you can't jump on me there, right? Or, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that first of all, trying to help them understand to the degree that they are able to and using the language that's appropriate to their age and their developmental stage to help them be part of it, right? To help them, little kids' imaginations are wild they imagine things worse than cancer actually like that like you didn't even think of like maybe I did this to dad or it's my fault because I was mad at him because he didn't give me you know a lollipop when I wanted right. to or something that we can't even fathom um there there are different programs at Sloan we have a program for parenting with cancer we have a monthly group to call in a virtual group where people can call um just to talk about challenges that are happening in parenting while going through treatment and this is when I hear a lot the the energy level right like feeling like yeah. feeling just disappointed like this wasn't the experience of parenting that I wanted and I feel badly for my children right and we try to help reframe that a little bit like to try to just like we would with um, holiday traditions try to find ways to spend time with your children that you can right and um, and I think in the community there are also supports like cancer care and and, and other organizations have things specifically around parenting while going through treatment, especially as I think the growing acknowledgement of um, young adults going right. through this, right? Like that that's a thing that. Yeah. Well, one of my things like, so Christmas specifically with a child, that is, you know, so many kids favorite day of the year. And that was my first Christmas as a father. And one of the things that I remember my entire childhood, everyone always, my mother still jokes about to this day, was my dad spending the entire Christmas day building all the things that we got for Christmas, putting together the Lego sets and putting together the, you know, the, the car and the dollhouse and this and that. And I kind of really wanted that to be like my my identity as well as the dad on Christmas. And I didn't have the energy level to put together my, my daughter's dollhouse that day. And going through treatment as a parent is tough because, I mean, there are things that I didn't know about, like with the PET scan, where you're getting a radioactive injection. My daughter was six months old. You're not allowed to hold, hold her. her. Yeah. Right? I, I saw her first steps going through chemo. I heard her first words, her first birthday party when I was, when I was going through chemo. And physically and with just not even my emotional state, because my emotional state's so high in those moments as a proud father, but physically, you know, you, you're, you get drained really quickly yeah. and you, you have to kind of miss out on those things. Yeah. And that's really, really a heartbreaking deal. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good example of, I think what you mentioned earlier, Christy, is that 
the little the losses yeah right and the grief that goes along with that and understanding that you know when we think of grief we think of a loved one necessarily dying or something like that right but there are many different ways that grief can be experienced right. right and being able to address that and process that and how important it is because you know having that experience of you know having a newborn and you, the first christmas and missing out on that i'm sure it's something you still remember right As yeah i'm bringing it up six years up, later yeah you know um and and seeing it for what it is and 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 i think is is the first step to coming to terms with it um and and finding i guess some sort of you know peace for lack of a better word and 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 having it be part of your story. Yeah, it's it's the acceptance of those kind of limitations, right? It's yeah. acknowledging the things that you can't do, it's acknowledging the things you don't know, but trying to figure out what you can do, yeah. right? So not just saying, being defeated, but saying, hey, what are the parts that I can participate in? What are the things that I can do? Whether it's with friends, whether it's with family, whether it's with the tradition or the holiday season, because you know, you're coming into the end of the year and this is when everyone's making their their resolution for the next year what do they want to do in the next year and every cancer patient wants the same thing and it's to not have cancer and that's going to be the same resolution for your family as well and so there's just all these kind of stresses of things that you can't do that are quote unquote normal but your acceptance of that and being able to kind of realize what you can do um, physically emotionally to overcome these stresses is the the biggest thing I could recommend to people. And the thing you do is through trial and error, talking about it, figuring it out as you go. And then kind of just learning from other people like, you know, like you at the LRF helpline or Christy, who's doing this as social work, you've talked to hundreds and thousands of people who have gone through this experience before. And so being able to kind of learn from that is a huge deal. I think that the managing of expectations during, right? Like I think, especially with parenting, it can be helpful to remember that not to see a child's world through your eyes. It's a loss for you that you couldn't put together the dollhouse. Right. But your daughter has gotten what she needs from you, which is your attention and your love. Right. If you're oh, able to. Oh, the dollhouse got done. <laughs> you like talk to someone about, maybe yeah. the next day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So because I, mean, I did have that my family there to help with that. Uh-huh. Kind of thing. Right. But like her concept of time isn't the same as ours. As yours, now as an adult, right? right? Well, so. I just, I'm still going back to you know a little bit ago. Christy was like, "Give everyone something to do." <laughs> and <laughs> and totally. I'm like, "Dad, your right. kids are grown, but you're back to dollhouse duty." Yeah. yeah. Nice. You know. There you go. And <laughs> yeah. oh, that helps them to be it able does. to help you. Yeah. When, yeah. you know, they feel helpless, mm-hmm. they want a job. <laughs> and, yeah. and exactly, you're exactly right. That helps them and while helping me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's this whole kind of give and take situation yeah. to where everyone thinks it's about this one person or this one thing. Or you think like, hey, I'm really just, man, I'm making everyone do every, you know, they're cooking me dinner. They're the one who vacuumed my house this week. You know, they're the ones who are putting this dollhouse together. I feel terrible that I'm making them do this. I'm going to go without so they don't have to do. But in my experience, I found that these people these that love and care about you, they want that thing to do. It's helping them cope with your illness by doing something for you. Yeah. So, right. you know, give them a job. Them right. a job. That's, like, that, mm-hmm. that's like my 
my new motto I'm going to start telling people. Give them, give a, them job. a job. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> it has to be a job to that you want them to do, though, right? Like, I've, I've talked with a lot of patients who have had, who felt intruded upon also, right? Like, mm. especially yeah, if you're a young piece, adult, yeah. right? Like, it's sort of, you're an adult now, you have a family of your own, all of a sudden you need to ask your parents, or, or if, if you don't have parents around, other people for help. Right, and that can be really hard. So I always say, like, give them a job, ask them to do something that you actually need, right? Like, if you have a fridge full of tuna casserole and you hate tuna casserole, that doesn't do you any good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Like, but like, yeah. like, if you really like, you know, right. whatever. And I think Pasta. some people would appreciate that direction <laughs> uh-huh. as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which goes back to what I said earlier, you know, ask me if you want to help, and I can let you know what yeah, I need, ask, right? ask the the person ask them and then sometimes you ask you know you ask for help and they ask if there's anything they can do for Mm -hmm. you and sometimes guess what the answer is like and this might sound really bad but a few times during my treatment i mean more than a few times the answer was like please leave me alone and that's okay too yeah to where it's like hey i'm gonna go for a walk and they're like all right well well, let me get my shoes no you know please please leave me alone this is this is like the time that i need right and and that's okay too because some people like me included have such a big and loving support system that sometimes it was overwhelming and i didn't have something for everyone to do do right yeah and boundaries you know yeah exactly i could only have so much americone ben and jerry's ice cream in the freezer (laughs) at one time where you don't need to go get me anymore but yeah. it's a freezer. Yeah, it's just up. a freezer full of ice cream. <laughs> and great. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, sometimes the, the answer to that question is I need to be left alone. Yeah. And that's okay, too. Yeah. But acceptance of what you need, whether it's something or nothing, is uh, a huge deal. Yeah. I like that. One of the things that when you uh, talk to me about this podcast that came up in my mind the, for all the support groups that I have I've run that comes up often is um, it, around the holidays, especially I can see this happening through like with family that you don't always see or people like, right? Like everyone has mixed feelings, yeah. I think about <laughs> the holidays sometimes. And one of the things that comes up a lot, and I don't know if this happens to you, but that people feel the need to say something. And sometimes what they say is not helpful. Yeah. And so I think, <laughs> you know, like I could go on, I could make a list. I'm sure you could too, of yeah. like all the things not to say. Um, but giving yourself permission to be like, thank you so much for your concern, but that's not helpful to me. Yeah. Like is an okay thing to say, right? Someone who's like, but you're fine. You did it. Yeah. You're, you're done. Stop complaining. Like that's not helpful. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and here's what would be helpful, right? Like, and it might be like you leave me alone. Yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> like, I don't need to hear about this fruit in the Amazon that you read about that cures cancer, but the government's keeping it away from us. Exactly. Everybody, everyone I've talked to who has gone through cancer treatment has a friend or a cousin or this dude on Facebook. <laughs> That's like talk to him about that. I've got like six of them. <laughs> they know they're the oncologists all of a sudden, right? Yes, they exactly. The cures. So. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, right. do something else. Leave me alone. That's not really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah. That's okay, I think. Because I think most of the time, I would like to think that, that those comments are well intended, but they, they can be really hurtful. Like, mm-hmm. like yeah. when the person who asks a, a lung cancer patient, did you smoke? Not helpful. 
Yeah, right? I mean, it's so much attached like, to that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is where we are now. Does what? What does that matter? Right. 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 Is that going to change the 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 compassion or the help that I'm going to receive right. from people because of one thing or the other? And if the answer to that is like, yeah, that could change, then like you probably don't want that person around anyway. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, and I, you know this becomes so important from for survivors right yeah many years out and like you were saying earlier oh but you're okay now you know like right. why you're still rehashing things of the past you know we've heard that quite a bit too from individuals who um you know are a few years out of treatment have been in remission for a number of years but it is an anniversary maybe they do want to acknowledge it in some sure. way but there are family members who might diminish it for them you know and being able to speak up and say you know this is important to me and this is the way that I honor my journey this far. Well, because, you know, and like Christy said, like, hey, you look fine. You said you look great. You're doing fine. This was years ago. There's more to something than that than just the physical trauma, Absolutely. right? There's that emotional and the mental trauma. And then there's physical trauma that you can't see it's that yeah. people don't know about. Mm -hmm. I'm fine, but my feet have been asleep for six years yeah. you know my hands twitch right. that sometimes so badly I can't even use my phone you know these are things that are still an everyday occurrence absolutely that well yeah it's not something that's debilitating or preventing me from living a life you know that I want to live but there is physical scarring and there's emotional scarring that people don't know about so this isn't a a treatment only kind of support group yeah you know you you've developed or at least i have a support group for for life right mm -hmm. and i think that's very relevant for many lymphoma patients specifically those who are diagnosed with indolent lymphomas uh -huh. who are um placed on what's called an active surveillance or watch and wait protocol right yeah. where they're being monitored over a period of time they don't necessarily show signs of being um, sick or that they have cancer, you know, so a lot of family members might be wondering like why aren't you in treatment or what have you and having explained that also is a whole other process that I think um, for a lot of patients um, and survivors is, is, is quite overwhelming um, and You know being able to communicate how you're feeling at that point and how they're making you feel is, is important I think and I would imagine that being older especially with um a lot of patients diagnosed with lymphoma tend to be on the older side that there's so much more stress that they have to deal with. Maybe they don't have the family there to help them or, you know, maybe they are retired and they don't have um, the resources. So Christy, are there particular resources specific for, for those individuals? Sure. I mean, I think that's a great point you bring up. I mean, we've been, the, the term financial toxicity is now showing up in the psychosocial yeah. literature as a, as like a side effect of cancer, right? Absolutely. And I think um, what you're talking about is folks who are more vulnerable for whatever reason, right? They don't have the same support network, um, whether they're older or whether they're they're younger and they don't have a support network, right? Like social support is really important, and um, yeah, there. I mean, Sloan Kettering has a 65 plus program. Right, um, cancer and aging actually is what it's called now, an interdisciplinary team, um, because 65 has become less uh, relevant in right. terms of like <laughs> aging because we're living longer. Um, but I think, 
And in the community too, right? Like cancer in general more often affects older adults, right? Um, in terms of the the incidence, right? And so there, the problems that come along with aging and vulnerability, right? Like they're, they're connected, right? So, I mean, I think seeking the support at the hospital where you get your treatment, um, reaching out to organizations in the community, um, senior centers and um, Gilda's Club and different things like that, like the, the resource that you provide, like helping people connect. I mean, it's a challenge. When, when you don't have a support network and you're going through cancer, it's really, it's really difficult. And I think we, one of the things that social workers try to do and hope to do is um, find the strength in a system in a person's system and try to help them bolster it, right? And help them connect to additional support if they are, if they need it, yeah. right? But specific programs, I think, are more specific to the treatment centers, like for cancer and aging. Um, sure. But I think the, the broader oncology, like psycho-oncology community serves older adults as well, right? That's the, the main population, I'd say. So anywhere else, like Cancer Care or Gilda's Club or, um, the, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, all those different organizations um, can be a source of support and help you find what's local. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah, and I, you know, we always encourage folks to call us um, so that we can connect them with different resources that we know of. You know, I think, you know, Memorial Sloan has a great suite of programmings, and I'm sure many other institutions do. The problem sure. is that many times the patients don't know about them. That's right. Right. So yeah. something we always encourage folks are to make sure that they are in contact with a social worker mm -hmm. at their institution. That's mm -hmm. always a part of the conversation that we have, just that they're aware of what local resources might be available to them um, that they just might know about, but who, that may really benefit them. Right. Um, and that's part of the problem, right, is how do we access or, or um, connect with those patients that don't know who sure, we it's are, hard. right, in the first place. And yeah. also along similar in, in some ways to that is, say you have a patient who maybe would benefit from some form of support, but isn't really communicating that there is a need, right? Yeah. You know, what types of signs do we look for, sure. right? Um, you know, and I don't know if you guys have any experience in terms of like when someone is going through something but they're not communicating it, how do we know when to intervene yeah. as a caregiver or as a family for, uh, or, or a friend, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have at Sloan, at least I can only speak to, we have a high risk criteria yeah. for um, referral, for evaluation, for social work or for um, psychiatry. Um, when patients come for their initial visit, they fill out a nursing assessment that asks a series of questions about their distress, yeah. their symptoms of depression and anxiety, and also assesses their risk for um, different kinds of abuse, like domestic violence, okay. child abuse, yeah. elder abuse. And there are different criteria that um, trigger an automatic referral to social work, right? And also the medical teams are trained in, in sort of noticing symptoms and signs of depression and anxiety, suicidality, which are real things, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes it's hard when someone, it's very tricky when someone is suffering. Yeah. And yeah. But it, it might be too overwhelming for them to consider speaking to a social worker, right? right? Like yeah. the social workers have a huge 
the, whatever experiences they've had with mental health in the past, if it's on TV or their own personal experiences, yeah. right? They have a stigma. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe it's not the social worker they want to talk to. Maybe it's their nurse practitioner, right? Yeah, like no, encourage them right. to speak to someone on their team. I agree. You know, yeah. like that, that might be able to connect them. I agree, you know, and I think we've experienced some of the same pushback, if you will, mm -hmm. when we talk about um, seeking some form of help beyond, you know, uh, family or, or friend. Um, I know there's a lot of stigma around even the word a therapist sure. or, or a counselor. So yeah. sometimes we'll say, um, you know, would it be helpful for you to speak to a professional? You know, kind of a little bit more vague, a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, well, it's a, a emotionally charged word that I think a lot of people might have associations totally. with, right? I mean, I'm fond of telling people in a, an oncology setting like that, that, you know, if you're not anxious, there I would be worried. Like yeah. to, to get a referral <laughs> to a social worker is right. normal, right? Yeah. Um, and also that you're not crazy. The situation is crazy. Yes. Right. And yes. anyone would need support, right? Um, and some people do better with peer support, right? right. It's not the social worker that they want to talk to, but they they could know that the social worker could hook them up with um, a support group. Exactly. And that might be a way in. So we, you know. We try to be available yeah. and making sure people know as much as possible. We try every avenue of you know, marketing and yeah. for the Resources for Life After Cancer program, which is all about survivorship. So we have support groups and lectures yeah. and, um, and different you know, interventions sort of to get information out just about the survivorship experience. But many people will say, I never knew about this, even though there's yeah. flyers everywhere, <laughs> we're emailing them every week. Like yeah. there's, and it's, you kind of have to hit people right when they're ready, like yes. when they're receptive, because exactly. you just keep trying. That's that sweet you know, spot like, of grasping them at, and grabbing them at that point, yeah. so they're able to actually take it in and figure out whether it's appropriate for them. And and yeah, you know, I think that's that's exactly been you know our experience as well. And I think there's also something to be said about about um, the need for some you know, patients and survivors and caregivers for that matter who might benefit from support but, ne but don't necessarily feel like a support group might be appropriate for them. And kind of going back with that peer support where programs like our own lymphoma oh, support network, which I matched, uh, um, awesome. Yeah, which we match, and I mentioned earlier, because um, that can be done for over phone and email. Yeah, right? that's right. Anonymous. Anonymous, even. even. Yeah. yeah, you know, and, and sometimes it's just a one-time conversation. Um, then and that's the draw of contacting us, like a, an mm. Andrew number, or yeah. going onto a message board or a list yeah. server, and, and being able to post whatever question you have and yeah. not feel um, judged or, or feeling as though you can't talk about it. Um, you just have that anonymity about it. And I, I think it's definitely worth saying that for um, you know a lot of patients, survivors, and caregivers, you know, for for many of them, um, a support group might not be the most appropriate thing, or they're not feeling they don't feel fairly comfortable being around other people face to face, and that's when things like uh, peer support are important, like our own very own lymphoma support network, which I mentioned earlier, where we match you know patients and caregivers with others uh, who have been through a similar experience, just because that can be done over phone and email. Right, and there's that anonymity, um, and I think that's certainly a big draw for for a lot of people, especially over the holidays, right? When we have noticed a spike in in the calls that we get, um, and and for people looking for support in particular, you know, it's it's a very raw time for them, um, and they really want to be in many ways comforted, right? All right, 
Well, thank you, Dexter and Christy, for joining us today and for the great conversation. Well, um, thank you. I also want to thank our listeners and for anyone uh, who has any other questions about coping with lymphoma or just lymphoma in general, we encourage them to call our helpline. Um, the phone number is 1-800-500-9976, or they can email us at helpline at lymphoma.org. Um, and we also hope that you'll join us for our next podcast, which will be on mindfulness, which is a very interesting topic. Um, and for now, uh, we at LRF wish everyone happy holidays and a very happy and healthy new year.